Psalm 42, you'll notice in your Bible there, it says that this is to the chief musician, the contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now, before we read it, I just want to give you a little background about the sons of Korah. The Korahites were a faction of the Levites, the priests, and they were in charge of leading in song, leading in worship. Think about those who were just in the choir loft. You think of them as Korahites, and they would lead the singing in the chapel services and so on and so forth. And so, um, but where Korah first appears is in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 16, remember, it was... Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses as the children of Israel were traveling in the wilderness, uh, he decided that Moses was not the man that God had chosen to lead the people and that Moses had merely led them out there to kill them and that all of this was wrong and bad. In fact, 250 people, the Bible says in number 16, followed Korah in the rebellion against Moses. It didn't go so well for him that day. Um, Moses went before the Lord, God opened up the earth and swallowed all 250 people up into a giant hole and then closed the earth. End of story. Except for there was descendants that remained. Now I don't know how they felt, but I'm trying to imagine in my mind how it would affect you to be a descendant of that particular scenario. That for the rest of your life and your children's lives and your grandchildren's lives and on and on and on it went, as soon as anyone found out you were a Korahite, they would be reminded of what happened in Numbers chapter 16. And so I think that that's important to know as we read these words. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. O oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan and from the heights of Haran. For the hill of Mizar, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All of your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. I remember when I was in college, I was a, when I did my undergraduate work, I was a business major. And... So I always thought that I would continue my entrepreneurial 
endeavors and I would conquer the world and make millions of dollars and that would be the key to my happiness and success in life. And so in my college years, not only did I not know God, not know of God, not have any concept of God, but I was a, a very worldly and earthly person and I not only had to read uh, tons and tons of business books for my education but also uh, just for my own edification. I was a voracious reader of whatever information I thought might benefit me. I remember reading a business book, and in the book, is a book by Steve Covey. It's a very, very famous book. In this book, he tells this story of some people riding on a, uh, a train, like a, a subway in New York City. And so there they are. They're all there going to their various places that people are going. And this man gets on the train with his uh, little kids, he's got a couple of little children and they get into the train and the man just sort of sits down and slumps over and his kids uh, get up and start running up and down the center aisle and making noise and, you know, running into people's newspapers that they're trying to read and just are very disruptive and very uh, obnoxious. And all the people on the train are thinking what you or I would be thinking. They're thinking, you know, come on, dude, you can't just sit there and let your kids run like wild banshees all over this, you know, train car. I mean, we're all uh, trying to just get to where we need to go. I mean, can't you just make your kids sit down and shut up and behave? And so there's undoubtedly this scorn in the, amongst the people. No one says anything, but everyone's thinking this. And they're just looking at this man like, you must be the most pathetic father who's ever lived. And then... Someone says something to the man, and the man just sort of picks his head up and looks over him, and with all the strength he has, he says, we just lost their mom. And suddenly, the whole picture changes. You see, sometimes what seems to you and me as what is is not. And we don't know all of what's going on behind the scenes. Sometimes the ornery, misbehaving children that are annoying us are maybe doing that for a reason. Maybe the person who hasn't been in church for a couple weeks is not just being lazy and doing other things. Maybe there's something going on in their life that you're unaware of. Maybe the person who's been a little short-tempered or hostile with you, and really just, quite frankly, gotten on your nerves. But maybe the problem is not just that they're immature. Maybe the problem is not that they just need to grow up and learn to do the right thing. Maybe there's a secret struggle going on in their life that you and I are unaware of. Where did we ever get the idea that believers don't find themselves downcast. Where did we ever come up with this presumption that people who are followers of Christ, who are born again by the Lord Jesus Christ, don't get depressed? Because if that were true, why is this psalm in the Bible? Why is Psalm 88 in the Bible? Why is the story of Elijah in the Bible? 
And I could go on and on and on of how God has specifically put before us in Scripture instances of people who are followers of Him, who find themselves not just in a valley, not just in a a time of struggle, but in a darkness, in a fog that does not lift, in a state of depression. Why does Paul say to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. He's talking to the church. Why are there faint-hearted people in the church? Why are there weak people in the church? What is going on here? Probably uh, my uh, greatest um, hero of the past is Charles Spurgeon. I have pretty much read everything that has he's ever that we have of his that's ever been written he's considered to be the greatest baptist preacher of all times uh, he would preach in london and thousands of people would come to hear him preach in a time where there was no such thing as a mega church there was no uh, there was no sound system to amplify his voice and yet thousands of people would pack literally just jam pack into the the chapel of London to hear him preach. And yet, every year of his ministry, at least two, sometimes up to three months of his year would be completely silent. Where in the chronic depression that he faced day in and day out, he was unable even to bring himself to go to church, stand up, and preach the gospel. But when he did, oh, what power came from him. Now, I can remember thinking, Lord, how can this great man of God, that literally I marvel at the things that he was able to to see in Scripture and the way he lived his life and just the person that he is, and yet he was daily struggling to find the strength to put one foot in front of the other. And so many times, a fourth of his entire ministry, he just couldn't even get out of bed. Why do people get depressed? Why do we get down and there's no simple, trite answer to pull us up out of the the fog or the funk? Well, the simple answer is, is the fall. People get depressed for the same reason people get cancer. That when sin entered the world, everything broke. Everything that was intended to be one way is now broken and operating in a way it was not intended to be. I thought for us to have this conversation today, we really need a very simple, simple way of thinking about the way the Bible. I'm I'm certainly not a medical doctor and I'm not offering you any medical advice today. I'm a pastor, and I want you to know what the Bible has to say about what goes on behind the scenes in a lot of people's lives around us, and in many of your lives, and in many of the lives of people whom you love. But we need a simple definition. Here's my definition for today. Depression is a profound hopelessness and despair. See, when I read Psalm 42, which is such a great comfort to my heart, I can't tell you how many times. I have had to get off by myself and 
flip open my Bible to the book of Psalms, especially Psalm 88 or Psalm 42, and just breathe. Just breathe. Because in, in this psalm, everything doesn't, doesn't end with a happy ending. Everything doesn't resolve itself. It starts low and it ends low. And I'm so glad because sometimes days start low and they end low. Sometimes weeks start low and they end low. Everything doesn't always have this happy ending in the, in the time frame in which we think it ought to. Notice what this psalm can teach us about being in a low place, being downcast, being depressed. This pleasant chorus that we like to sing, verse 1, As the deer pants for water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When I read this, the first thing I realize is, is that this is not some little fairy tale instance. This is a, an animal that God created and instinctively gave the instinct to survive. And it is an animal in the throw of survival. So the psalmist introduces this psalm by saying, This is for you when you are just trying to survive. You see, the one thing that will do a, a person who's downcast absolutely no good whatsoever is for you or I to look at them and to say, you know what you need to do is try harder. Here is an animal that is searching for water to survive. Now, your advice to that animal would not be, well, you're just not trying hard enough. Or your advice to this animal would not be, you know, if you had more faith, water would just bubble up out of that dried out creek you're standing in front of. That animal has no ability to create water or to make water flow or to make water show up. All it has is its innate desire for survival. When we're downcast and in Christ, part of us knows that God loves us and that he's our heavenly father. But at the same time, there's this persistent voice that says to us, yes, God is capable of loving and saving you, but he's consciously choosing not to. And it's ringing out in your head to further push you down, down. You have feelings like, well, God doesn't love me. I don't love me. No one loves me. There's nothing lovable about me. I'm a disappointment to everyone who cares about me. I'm a failure. I'm weak. I'm alone. Being downcast, it robs you of your physical strength. It fills you with profound feelings of worthlessness and shame. And how does this work? I love the way the Bible uses what so many people miss to give us such insight into the human condition. When, when Ray said in his baptism video, when he quoted me as saying, the more we know God, the more we know ourselves. This is why, right here. I want you to look at what the Bible says here. In external circumstances, sometimes people get downcast 
because of external circumstances. Look at what the Bible says in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? Look at verse 10. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You see, sometimes we're going along through life and things externally, there are circumstances that come into our life on the outside that are so troubling, so disheartening, so discouraging that we find ourselves paralyzed, paralyzed under the, 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 the pain or the affliction of, of what's being pressed in from the outside onto our lives like a, like a, a pressure cooker. Maybe it's someone who is not really able to muster a smile. Maybe they haven't been acting the way they, you're used to them acting. And uh, maybe they haven't, you know, been to church in a week or two. Or they have just, you know, haven't been to Sunday school class. Or whatever the case may be. Things are a little bit different. And you notice the fact that they're different. But you approach them and you say to them, hey, you know, maybe you quote some little Christianese statement to them about forsaking the assembling of each other. Or you say to them, hey, you know what? Tomorrow's going to be a great day or God's promised that today's his day or whatever the case may be. And what you don't know is that they're Every single day, 24 hours a day, they're caring for a bedridden loved one, maybe a spouse, maybe a, a parent. And they're just exhausted. And they're just spiritually empty from the, the, the never-ending stress of the external pressure of having to care for this person who demands their momentary-by-momentary momentary attention. Maybe it's somebody who's being persecuted at work by a superior or in some other way. And so every day at work is like a war zone. But rather than asking them about that, you just assume that the problem in their life is simply going to be fixed by whatever it is you have to say. You see... Sometimes there are circumstances externally in our lives that we don't know about unless we sit down and have a conversation with somebody. Unless we say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? What about internal unrest? See, sometimes it's external circumstances, but sometimes everything on the outside is fine even more hard to perceive, even more difficult to, to, to nail down is internal unrest. Look at what the Scriptures say. And by the way, just let me draw your attention to a couple things about verse 3 and verse 10. When the psalmist repeats this phrase, this taunting of where is your God, the Bible's telling you something about the person who's writing this. You see, you wouldn't taunt somebody... And say, oh, well, where is your God now? Unless you could physically see on the outside that they were troubled. You see? And so the person is physically bearing the burden of this external pressure that's causing the enemies to further torment them. 
So you see, when there's, when there's external circumstantial pressure, it will oftentimes show up in countenance, but we need to be vigilant and watchful for that. But what about internal unrest? Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why, have, why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And then look at verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance and my God. Some of you are astute enough to say already in your mind, hey, wait a second, I notice there's a reoccurring theme here in this psalm. There's, there's a repetitive nature to these words. Why is the psalmist repeating almost the same phrases multiple times within one short psalm? It's very telling. And the main thing I want you to see in those two scriptures is that word disquieted. It's a word that means turmoil. It's internal. It's in the soul. Why are you cast down, soul? The psalmist is saying, why, soul, are you so down? And why are you in turmoil within me? It's the picture of a person who is throwing the towel in, who is ready to give up. People who are depressed, they will describe this roar that is within them that will not hush, it won't go down. It, it causes you to not be able to function in social situations because you are always hearing this repetitive disquietness in your soul. You're uneasy all the time and so you can't focus on things or think about things and it just wears you out. Always churning inside. You see, being downcast, being depressed... It is an illness, but it's not only an illness. It's not you, you, it's not, you can't just say, well, it's an illness. Sick people take medicine, and medicine makes sick people better. It's not so with being downcast. You don't just get better. It's a very complex thing in the Scripture. Whenever you find a person who is in a state of depression or darkness and can't seem to get their way out, you realize the complexity of the human person. You, feel, you, you realize that all of us are this very complex amalgamation of body, soul, and spirit, that all these facets work together. But the psalmist isn't trying to give us some biological understanding. He's giving us a spiritual picture to, to see what does a person do in this situation? You see the fight in the psalmist. You see the, the grit in this psalm of, of the, the, the author hanging on. You know, he, he is expressing that he is not where he wants to be with God, but he's not letting go either. He's hanging on. So three things I think this psalm will give us to respond when we're downcast or respond to those who are downcast. Number one, be real. If you miss this step, you can abandon the whole ship. Because when people approach me, when my spirit is disquieted within me, and they're not genuine and authentic, I don't listen to a word they say. In fact, they make it worse. Be real. 
Look at what the psalmist says in verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He is crying out to God, and he's being real with God. And he's saying, God, I don't understand this. This is what I am struggling with. This is what I am facing, but I am bearing my soul before you. And I'm just being honest about the situation and the circumstance that I'm facing. We know by the words of this psalm that the psalmist knows that God hasn't forgotten him. He calls God his rock. That is a, 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 a word of security, of stability, of immovable nature. That the, the relationship that this psalmist has with God as a rock cannot be altered or changed. But yet in the midst of this relationship, I don't understand. I don't understand why I can't come out of this or shake this. The psalmist knows in his head what is true. But what he's telling you and me is it doesn't feel true. God is my rock. But I don't feel like that right now. And there's a lesson. There is a very important lesson here for us. When we encounter a brother or sister who's downcast, what they do not need is our intellectual information. They don't need intellectual information. This psalmist doesn't need anybody to tell him, hey, God is your rock. Remember that? He knows that. What does he need? Well, number two, you have to be grounded. First, you have to be real. And secondly, you have to be grounded. By grounded, I mean grounded in... What is true? When somebody is down, down... What they need are words that come from a grounded spirit, a grounded heart. They need somebody to speak into their life and to respond to them from a, an authentic place. Notice what verse 7 says. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Again, Notice the wording that the psalmist used. Whose waves and billows are they? They're God's. The psalmist is theologically astute enough to understand that the waves and the billows are not of his enemy. Though he's being attacked, though he's being, he's being hurt by external circumstances, he knows that he serves a sovereign God. He knows that God is the one, that if there are billows and there are waves, then they are God's because he rules over every arena of the universe. And so this is why 
A downcast person doesn't need a lecture. They don't need intellectual wisdom. They need a psalm. That's what they need. They need someone grounded to come and put their arms around them and hug them and sing a psalm to them. Open their Bible to Psalm 42 and just begin to read. Don't expound. Don't explain. Let God do what only God can do. Look at verse 8. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime. Now this is very critical, the last part, 8b. And in the night... His song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. See, every person who's downcast knows that the day is going to come to an end and then it's going to get dark. And when it gets dark, it gets quiet and everybody goes away. And then you're left in the darkness and the loneliness of that moment with no one else around. And it's the worst time. And the psalmist says, well, when it's night, it's his song. You know what? Isn't it crazy that we're reading his song and it's talking about his song? That the Korahites wrote this. This was never read. This was sung. It's a song. And yet it's a song ministering as a song in the night of one who's downcast. And it becomes a prayer to the God of my life. You see, when the sun goes down and there's no... Body else around. I can sing God's word. I can sing a song. You ever been just driving down the road and you feel like the world is caving in around you and you don't know what else to do and then suddenly you just start to sing? Not well, but you sing. And it's interesting the songs that our heart gravitates to where we will find they're not happy songs. They're true songs. They're real songs. They're songs that meet us where we are, that minister to us in what we are dealing with. And they don't make everything go away. But they sustain us and carry us. So you have to be real. You have to be grounded. Thirdly, you have to be repetitive. There's so much I want to say about being repetitive. But we just simply don't have time. But just suffice it to say this. Here's the psalmist repeating over and over certain phrases in this psalm. Hopefully you know enough about the Bible to know that when something's repeated, you ought to take note of that. And when we sing a song in this fellowship and it repeats something over and over, before you begin to ruffle up your shoulders and start making some ridiculous comment about why are we singing the same thing over and over, because you need to hear it over and over. That's why the Bible says it over and over. The Bible repeats things over and over and over because that's the way God designed us. Newsflash, when you get to heaven, you're going to hear holy, holy, holy over and over and over. 
Got to be repetitive. Look at verse 4. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. Remember, this is a worship leader. It's a Korahite. And he's remembering. He's remembering how it used to be when he wasn't in this place of downcast, when he wasn't in this place of depression. Then in verse 6, he says, Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan. I will remember you when times were good and better, when things weren't the way they are now. Because now I'm stuck on these heights of Mount Hermon and Mount Miser. But, oh God, I'm remembering you from the Jordan. You see, when we are downcast, we have to be repetitive. We have to repeat to ourselves all that we know is true about God. You have to, you have to preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over and over. Never stop listening to yourself and start speaking to yourself. That's what the Bible says. When it's dark outside, don't listen. Speak, talk, talk, talk. Because the voice in your head is going to tell you the wrong thing. 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter giving instruction says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Verse 8, For these things are yours, and they abound. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even unto blindness. Why? Because he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Don't forget what Jesus has done for you. You see, when you come up to a brother or sister who's in depression, who is downcast, you need to... You need to just come up to them, not with a lecture, not with intellectual information. Come to them with a psalm and remind them of what God has done for them over and over and over. Just let the Lord's love encompass them. Let them realize and understand what the gospel is. That you, yes, today you feel terrible. And yes, you don't know where tomorrow goes or the day after that or the day after that. But what you do know is that you've been cleansed from all your old sins. You've been set free from all that. And that may not feel real great right now, but let me tell you something. It's storing up for you such a treasure one day that you'll come into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, blame blameless your body soul and spirit the scripture says preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ I wonder if Paul wrote that in 1 Thessalonians 5 23 and 24 I wonder if he wrote that because he wanted us to know your body soul and spirit all blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ you see We have a responsibility to pay attention to what's going on in the lives around us. 
and to mature in faith, you have to do that. And if you don't do that, you're immature and disobedient and not growing. If you just don't say anything, you're wrong. But what do you say and how do you say it? Make sure that before you presume upon some opinion of what's going on inside of someone, you take a moment and ask them. Ask them. Look into their eyes and see. Maybe there's more going on under the surface than you know of. When Jesus was facing the cross, I mean, his death is completely imminent. Calvary is the very next event in his life. He finishes the time with his disciples in the upper room. There's nothing left to do but be crucified and die. But he knows that in that moment he's going to be separated from the Father. And in the grief that wells up within him, what is it that he does? He goes to the garden. And he goes into the garden of Gethsemane. But unlike times previously where Jesus would just disappear, the disciples would wake up, where's Jesus? Oh, he's gone up on top of the mountain spending time with the Father. Or he's, he's hunkered down somewhere behind the bushes spending time with the Father. This particular time, he doesn't just disappear into the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes his three closest friends with him all the way into the inside of the garden. And there, Peter, James, and John are with him. And then he says to him, he says, now, I want you to wait here with me. And I want you to stay awake and be vigilant. Why does Jesus do that? What is he illustrating for us? He's illustrating for us that in his great grief, in his moment of ultimate downcast, the Lord Jesus is illustrating the need for authentic, genuine community, for people to understand what's going on inside. Jesus wanted those three to know what was going on inside of him. He could have very easily gone by himself, but he didn't. He took them with him. And even though they, they fell asleep, he went and woke them up. They fell asleep, he went and woke them up. He said, listen, it's important to me that you know what's going on inside of me. You see, we need genuine community we need people to know what's really going on inside of us and it takes a mature person to be able to share that with other people and it takes a mature person to be able to ask a simple question and then to respond rightly to the answer that you get we want to make sure that as the people of God, we're paying attention to the struggles of those around us. And that it's not a lack of faith. Did Jesus have a lack of faith? Did the psalmist have a lack of faith? Did Elijah have a lack of faith? No. I would say to you, it takes more faith to love God and be downcast than it does to love God in the sunshine when everything's going the way 
you think it ought to go. So be encouraged this morning. If you find yourself struggling in the darkness of days, maybe God is growing in you a faith strong enough to withstand, strong enough to hold on when you don't understand so that he can use you greatly in the lives of those around you. Let's stand and bow our heads.